0: Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation with some of the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, president and CEO of NatureServe, where we've been working for 50 years to protect endangered species and ecosystems. NatureServe is a global leader in the use of science, data, and technology for conserving biodiversity and preventing extinction. With this podcast, we want to introduce our audience to some of today's key players in conservation and share the amazing work being done around the globe to protect our planet's rich biodiversity. With that, let's get into it. I'm here today with Wes Knapp from North Carolina and Anne Francis, a botanist at NatureServe to talk about a recent really exciting paper that they published about um, extinction, which is not really that exciting, but. Um, it's an important paper, uh, ext- the extinction of plant species in North America. And so I want to uh, ask Ann and Wes to introduce themselves quickly, and then we'll get into it. Ann, why don't you go ahead and go first?
1: Sure. Thank you, Sean, and thanks for featuring us on this podcast. Um, my name is Ann Francis. I'm the lead botanist with NatureServe. Um, I've been here about 10 years, and I was uh, really privileged to be a part of. Um, this paper that Wes was the lead on.
2: And I'm Wes Knapp, mountains botanist and ecologist with the North Carolina Natural Heritage Program. I've been with the program for four years and I was with the Maryland program for 15 years before I moved here in 2016.
0: And I understand that the move to Western North Carolina has been a dream come true for you.
2: I, I say I'm living the dream because Asheville is a wonderful place to raise a family, and there's so much to see, and the biodiversity is really off the charts.
0: Excellent. So, Wes, what was it that um, sort of got you interested in studying botany and biodiversity?
2: I've always been interested in nature to some degree. Like, I camped a lot as a young kid. I worked in the gardens with my dad and uncle and my mom. But I hate to say the joke, but I was a late bloomer to my love in botany and I didn't even appreciate plants until I was a sophomore in college and I had field botany and I was completely blown away at how plant blind I was to the diversity of plant life around me. And once I learned you could use a book and figure out what the plants were, I was totally hooked. That's so great.
0: And Anne, how about you? I know you have a a different path into botany than Wes.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, in in some ways, but there's a similarity as well. So I was always interested in in uh, plants at a young age. I grew up in Miami, and um, I, but I, I didn't really know that you could become a botanist until college. Uh, similarly, I took a uh, it was actually a horticulture class, but it had a very large component of local flora. And um, again, I I, ha- I had no idea that you could do this as a profession. Um, and I was hooked from, from that point forward.
0: Yeah, I think so. one of the things that's so exciting about getting to work in the fields that we work in and the kind of people that we get to work with is a lot of us have that sort of, wait, you can make a living being an ecologist? Or you can make a living going out into the woods and like looking for animals or plants? And that idea is sort of mind-blowing too. I think a lot of parents, much less um, kids who are going into school and thinking about their career path. Yeah, uh, and I
2: feel um, really fortunate to have found that career path because the only way I know I'm on vacation versus work is I wear shorts on vacation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So actually, I wanted to ask about field work. It sounds like, Wes, you still get to uh, do field work in your job. Is that right?
2: Yeah, doing field work and exploring the wilds of Western North Carolina is my primary function at my work—to find rare plant species and high-quality natural areas, and to document those in hopes to protect them. It's really rewarding and exciting work. It's fantastic.
1: When I was working on my PhD, I, I, I studied how to establish native wildflowers on roadsides, and so it wasn't the most pristine of places. And I remember I would, you know, drive to Miami, where I'm from, pretty frequently and arrive at my parents' house, you know, completely dirty, gross with my specimens or whatever. And my dad would say to me, that's great, Anne, that you're getting a PhD, but when are you going to get the corner office? <laughs> Just, And I think, you know, that, um, you know, perspective, like a lot of our parents, equate success with, uh, you know, big salary and corner office. And uh, I think there's a, a lot to be learned from finding a career where you find enjoyment in what in what you do every day. So I
0: completely and- agree with you. Uh, on the last podcast, we had Lucas Joppa, the chief environmental officer for Microsoft. Um, I asked him or what gets him up in the morning, essentially. And his answer was, If at the end of my life, at the end of my career, if I have allowed one fewer species to go extinct than would have gone extinct because of my career, I would consider that a success. And that's the kind of sort of um, intangible sort of thrill that comes from working in the kind of fields that we do where we're working daily to protect biodiversity and to sustain sustain life on Earth. Um, it 's Nice to hear you both sort of say to say something very similar it 's uh, it's really inspiring so but I do want to get to the paper because that 's what we 're ostensibly here to talk about today, yeah. um, and you recently published a paper about uh, research on um, well what were once um, plants living in North America but have now become extinct. Um, Wes, why don't you tell me a little bit about what um, got you interested in this particular paper and then some of the, some of the top line results.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I think I mentally got interested in extinct plants when I first started working for the Maryland Heritage Program. Because I, I, I got my dream job right out of undergrad and I studied the rare plant list relentlessly. And Mar- I was on the eastern shore of Maryland and we had an extinct species on our rare plant list called Not all's micranthemum. And I didn't know extinct plants occurred in my backyard. Like I always viewed it as someplace like the Amazon or the tropics. So over the years I'd talked to botanists, hey, what extinct plants are in your state? And I found we really didn't know. So I started compiling a list on extinct plants maybe 10 years ago. And it wasn't until maybe five years ago, I saw Reed Noss, one of the collaborators on the project, give an amazing talk at the Ecological Society of America meeting. And in that talk, they were giving projections about how much is gonna go extinct over the next hundred years. But what I realized is we didn't know what had currently been, has gone extinct. Like, what's the baseline? So I, started, I reached out to Ann and some of my other collaborators, and I'm like, hey, I'm not finding this in the literature. Has this not been done? And every, to everybody's kind of surprise, was no, this hasn't been done. This is really worthwhile. And let's try to tackle this. And, you know, fa- five years later, a uh, project that's mostly a, a non work labor passion project is finally finished. I'm happy it's over. <laughs> and
0: Anne, you're um, as the lead botanist for NatureServe and Wes working in our sort of broader network of programs that are contributing data into the, into the biodiversity database that NatureServe sort of stewards for the world. Um, how did your role work in the, in the research and in the paper?
1: So I think in the beginning, I was more of a convener uh, and motivator than anything else. When Wes first contacted me and said, hey, you know, has this been done? I was like, I don't, I don't think so. Um, And we started reaching out to people to put together the team. Um, One of the things that we, um, I mean, we all, we always knew it, but we, we knew that if we were going to put out a paper that was accurate. On plant extinction, we needed representation from um, around, um, around the US, people who knew the places where these plants had gone extinct, and we also needed representation from different areas within botany. We needed field botanists, we needed people at botanical gardens, um, we needed um, academics, um, just really to, these are, each plant is like a little mystery that we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of. And we needed all of the good players um, with knowledge to help us do that. So I, that, that was my role in the beginning, putting together the team, um, you know, later uh, on in the process, um, Wes and I worked together on vetting um, the, the, the data. Um, so I'll let Wes speak more to that. I love this idea that the plant is a
2: mystery. That's a, and
1: that is true. But Anne is is
2: selling herself short because nature serve data without the careful data we have, we would not have been able to complete this because to have, you know, 50 states plus all the Canadian provinces that their own information already really helped us move greatly forward.
0: Yeah, that's great, I think that's one of the things that's so um, wonderful about you know working in a place like NatureServe is that allows, because we have this incredible treasure trove of data going back 50 years from all across the United States and Canada, collected with similar formats and you know, similar methodologies, uh, so it makes it comparable, is a really powerful tool for studying biodiversity uh, in this part of the world. Um, so, well, let's talk about what you found. Like, um, should, I be, should I be
2: scared? I don't know if scared is the right word. Um, we document 65 extinct plants from the continental United States and Canada, which is vastly more than any other study documented. We found up to seven of these are only found in conservation gardens now, which we call extinct in the wild, which was just a fascinating turn of events. And most of the time, these gardens didn't even realize they might have the last individual of the species that was known.
0: You know, uh, it, it sort of gives me the chills. To hear you say the last known individual of a species, um, you know, I think about yeah. it in the context of this right here, where you could be standing there, and you know, one bad moment later, and that species no longer exists ever again. And yeah. trying to prevent that from happening um, is just—I don't
2: know—it gives me the chills. Yeah, and I can honestly say that when. I got the photos of, for instance, one of these plants from the Morton Arboretum, and I coordinated with an expert in the genus critiquus to make sure it was identified correctly. I had chills when Ron Lance, the expert, came back and said, yep, that's the only time I've ever seen that plant living.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Um, So what what are some of the things, Anne, when you were sort of looking at the data and trying to help ward up the results that jumped out at you uh, in the in the analysis?
1: Uh, I think that for me what I said earlier about each plant being a little mystery is true. They each have their own story and I think one of the, the 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 well the first thing to do with a little mystery is to do your fact finding. So we might have in the database that it hasn't been seen in 40 years but what does that mean? You know has it really not be, been seen in 40 years? You have to verify all of that. I think one of the difficult things with extinction uh, in general and with this paper is when do you call it? Um, there is so much that's unknown. And with extinction, you're trying to verify an absence, a negative, and the only way to be absolutely sure that something is not there is to find it, right? So um, you can get yourself stuck in this little loophole of how do you verify extinction? And then at what point do you say, we don't think this is around anymore? Uh, And every plant has a different set of circumstances that that needs to be considered.
2: That's so true. Every plant on that list was a battle to make sure we were accurately interpreting information. So there's always the hope that over the next hill will be the plant you're looking for. That's what drives me to do my work. But at some point, we have to admit the realities of our land and our landscapes and uh, the totality of the data. Now, I hope that drawing attention to all of these plants will lead to all of their rediscoveries. But I highly think that is not going to happen.
0: That's, a, yeah, that's a, the proving of a negative and hopefully finding um, these plants out in the wild again is um, a nice hopeful note. Um, one of the th- findings that you had was that uh, a lot of these species were, uh, when they were in the wild, had very limited ranges. And I'm interested in sort of the uh, ecology of that and what that means in terms of uh, protecting land and protecting species in the future.
2: Yeah, I found that to be a fascinating note that so 64% of all the extinct plants were, were what we call single-site global endemics. They had extremely narrow geographic ranges. And you can expect that in global biodiversity hotspots like California and Florida and Texas, where a lot of these things were found. It's not as expected in places like New England, where we also had some global single-site endemics that went extinct. Mm-hmm. But what I think that shows is the importance of small-scale site protection for biodiversity conservation. Because oftentimes we worry about ecosystems and large landscapes to make sure they're functional for a suite of species which is absolutely critical but there are examples of small sites that if we don't protect that single site we're going to lose significant components of biodiversity Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i I think you and i have had some conversations about the idea of uh, plant blindness before Mm -hmm. and uh, we know that there's a condition where people have face blindness and they can't they really can't see faces and recognize people um, and the idea of plant blindness uh, has intrigued me ever since you brought it to my attention. Because you know, we need to get people interested in plants and these plants to get them preserved. You know, it's, I guess, relatively easy to get people interested in rhinos and uh, Vancouver Island marmots and you know, other cute mammals and things like that. But you know, these uh, species that we're talking about are also important.
1: Absolutely. I, I personally think that people in general are already very interested in nature. I believe that from, you know, from watching my daughter and her friends walk through Rock Creek Park, uh, and even thinking back to when I was a kid, I just think people inherently are very interested in nature. I think plant blindness comes into play when we, we see a wall of green instead of recognizing individual plants, um, on, on their own. And I think that's all, uh, I think that's all surmountable, right? I think that people are really interested. I think it's, it's finding the way to reach them. And I think, I was thinking about this this morning and thinking about analogies to, to sort of explain it. I was thinking about how, um, when you go to your hometown, wherever it is, you kind of innately know what it looks like, what the major roads are. You know, Back in the days when we used to drive without a GPS and people would give you directions with landmarks and things like that, you all, you, you all know it, right? And, and even if you've moved to someplace else, every time you go home, those landmarks are familiar. For people who live in nature, like when I I did my master's degree, I lived with this indigenous group in Costa Rica. They would give me directions to people's houses and it would be like, well, take the path and at the stream with a, you know, big nutmeg tree, you know, make a left. And then all of their landmarks were were natural Mm. um, things that uh, they, because they were surrounded by it, you know, had committed to... Their memory and and were parts of their their life and I think if we all spend more time outside those things become more familiar to us um, so the big sycamore around the block uh, sort of thing um, and I think everybody is capable of becoming more familiar with the natural world and learning to distinguish the wall of green or you know this flying insect from another. Um, I don't know if that answers your question <laughs> or not. Um, I, I, I'm optimistic about overcoming plant blindness. That's. <laughs> well,
2: I, I think it, it. I think overcoming plant blindness needs to start at a young age. Like I take my girls out to explore. reef see waterfalls, look for salamanders, but I try to teach them a plant, one plant. Every hike, and usually it's something in flower, something that's pretty, something they might remember. So at least they're having that experience because so many people don't have that experience they don't have a baseline to even think about oh there's a bunch of different plants outside i don't even it's not something i'm concerned about at all
0: right it's um it's it's and it's important to to recognize because it is such a fundamental part of our environment and of course you know we're animals on the landscape too and understanding the nature around us is really part of our dna you know we we evolved understanding what was, you know, what was edible and what wasn't edible and um, things like that. And so plant blindness really shouldn't be a thing. I think it really is uh, a lack of awareness. Uh, Your stories about getting excited about botany and horticulture in college mirror those of other people I know who are plant advocates, shall we say, um, who had some experience in college that completely change their life in terms of their, their career path. And so uh, we just need to get more people more people thinking that way. Um, so I wonder if you have any other thoughts about um, your research and what that means and maybe if there uh, are other steps um, in the future, things that you want to follow up on from the research?
1: I think if, if anything, you know, you asked at the beginning, well, should I be scared at at this list of extinct plants? And I think I would like for people to take away that this is a call to action. You know, rather than being scared at what we've lost, it's how do we take um, what we've learned from the past and do what we can from this point forward to prevent further extinction. And I really think with most plants, preventing their extinction is not rocket science. It's not that expensive. And it's really feasible. It can be done. Uh, uh, And I just, I think um, looking, taking the trends and the patterns that we see from this research and applying them to plants that we know are at risk to prevent their extinction is, for me, the biggest takeaway and motivation and, and feeling of hope. I really think we can do something.
2: Great. Yeah, I can't echo Ann's comments any more strongly. That's exactly right. And I'm a, I'm a field person. I'm a non, I'm not an academic, but I do academic projects for I'm using air quotes fun because I think they're really interesting things. And I like, for me, it was more than just the academic exercise of what have we lost? It's how do we prevent future extinction events? So learning that single site global endemics are likely to go extinct means we should really focus on ex 2 So like seed banks, conservation garden collections of those single site global endemics and in SUTU get those sites protected to manage to prevent extinction events. Absolutely. How can we move forward from what we've lost? What can we learn from what we've lost? Cause at the end of the day, everybody in conservation, all we're trying to do is to prevent extinction. It's the lowest bar we can possibly set. We're not always exceeding that bar and we need to exceed it more.
0: Well, it's a, that was really powerful. Both of you. Um, and, uh, I completely agree with everything that you were just saying. And I also am really excited that you had sort of optimistic messages coming from a, a paper about extinction because it it can get depressing to think about extinction. And you know, I believe that we have sort of a, a moral and aesthetic obligation to preserve species and prevent them from going extinct. And uh, so I really appreciate uh, the work that you do on a daily basis to help sustain life on earth, and uh, also the work that you did with this paper. I think it's really exciting, and I hope it generates a lot of attention and uh, encourages more people to take uh, botany classes or become master naturalists.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope so, too.
0: Well, this wraps up this episode of Conservation Conversations. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, and until next time, thanks for listening.